Welcome to the podcast of New Covenant Church in Albuquerque, where we focus on the Bible, faith, and life issues. We hope this podcast will be helpful to you on your faith journey. Now, here's our message. At Christmas, we get to celebrate the greatest gift of all, that's Jesus. Uh, But then along with the greatest gift of all, he brings us four other gifts Well, more than four, but four that we celebrate at the Advent season. So we're going to be celebrating over the course of the next four weeks the fact that Jesus brings us hope, he brings us love, he brings us joy, and he brings us peace. Now, those are words that get thrown around a ton. So what I'd like to do over the course of the next four weeks is take a look at those four words, take a look at those four gifts according to what Scripture teaches and according to the fact that Jesus is the one that brings them to us. Let me ask you, starting with hope, what do you think of when I say the word hope? Like, I hope I don't get a bad diagnosis from the doctor. I hope there's enough money in the bank account to pay for the mortgage. I hope that we can put a meal on the table. I hope that I get to spend time with loved ones during the Christmas season. Those are all unknowns. However, when we take a look at the biblical word for hope, and the more I studied it in both the Old and the New Testament, the best definition that I could come up with for hope is that which is sure and set in the mind of God. Think about how that's very different than a worldly hope. It's very different from a hope that can disappoint. So the best I could come up with in listening to a few other scholars is that hope is that which is sure and set in the mind of God. Now we celebrate Jesus. Jesus coming to earth was sure and set in the mind of God in eternity past, long before anything in the world ever existed. And today we celebrate that that hope has come. We celebrate this season called Advent. Maybe you're wondering, like, what in the world is Advent? I keep hearing about this word. The word Advent literally means coming or arrival. So with the coming or arrival or Advent of Jesus, we're actually going to celebrate the hope that we have in him in what I call three tenses, past, present, and future. The ancient Jews had this longing for Jesus to come and be their hope, be their rescue. Now, before we even dive into the three tenses of the hope that we have, I want to make sure that we're clear on why we even have any hope. Has everything to do with who Jesus is. So who is he? If you were to go on the street and just ask the average person in Albuquerque, who is Jesus, what kind of answers would you get? I like to do that just for fun. I mean, this is the perfect time of year. Look, it's Christmas. I go to the gym and I look at somebody and usually they'll say happy holidays and I'll say, hey, Merry Christmas. Because this season is all about Jesus. But let me ask you, who do you think Jesus is? And you get some interesting answers. He's a guru. He's a religious leader. He was a good moral teacher. Or some actually get it right, and they have looked at Scripture. Let me read to you what Scripture says about Jesus. Just three, four passages we'll take a look at together. The first is from John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, And the word was God. Colossians chapter 1 verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Titus chapter 2 verse 13 says, We are waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. One more, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. A lot of people have put their hope in a lot of things that will let them down, because if you put your hope in the wrong object, you'll get let down every single time. 
However, if we put our faith and our hope in the right object or in the right person, you will never be let down. So I want to make sure that we're clear from the get-go that if we're worshiping the wrong Jesus or we're worshiping the wrong thing, we have no hope. Jesus never left room for us to say he was just a guru. He never left room to say he was just a good religious leader. He never left room for us to say he was just an angel. Never left room for us to say he was just a man. He gave us no option. He was either the Lord, God of the universe, or he was an absolute lunatic and a liar in the words of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis said, you got one of three L's to choose from when it comes to Jesus. He was either a liar, he was the biggest fraud ever who claimed to be God and wasn't, he was a lunatic who thought he was God and wasn't, or he was telling the truth, he was the Lord, he was the God of the universe. I love to take a look at what we would call evidence. If you were in a court of law and you were having to cast down a sentence, you need to do that based off evidence. What does the evidence say when it comes to the person of Jesus? When it comes to the fact that he fulfilled 351 messianic prophecies perfectly, that points to him being God. When archaeology does nothing but continue to prove the scriptures and what it says about Jesus, that points to him being God. His empty tomb and rising from the dead is more well attested to than George Washington ever being a president of the United States points to him being God. The miracles that he performed that were attested to by both friend and foe, people that hated Jesus, attest to the fact that he was God. So, I'm going to ask you at this point in time, take my word for it, that he is God. I would also ask you when you leave this place, continue to put that to the test and discover who Jesus is. Because apart from Jesus being God, being able to come to earth as God, die on a cross, rise again, and then come again, we don't have any hope. Everything else is transient. It'll be taken away. We can't put our hope in our health. We can't put our hope in our money. We can't even put our hope in our spouses, our kids, and our families because if any of those things that we put our hope in can be taken away, they're not a hope worth having. However, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he will be with us forever or we will be with him forever. That's a hope worth clinging on to. Amen? Okay, I know we're sleepy. Start, start drinking your caffeine. Skip the eggnog. Just go to the caffeine. Jesus brings us hope first and foremost in the past. The people had this ancient longing of hope in the past. We need somebody to come and rescue us. Not just from the oppression of the Romans that they were under at the time, but something far greater. They needed hope of rescue from sin and from death. Listen to the words of Isaiah, written about 700 years before Jesus came on the scene. Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. When it comes to the hope that we have in the past... Isaiah writes this, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. How were they to know who the Messiah was? Especially since so many people were coming on the scene and claiming to be the Messiah and giving people these false hopes. Listen, it wasn't uncommon for some dude to rise up and go, I'm the Messiah. Hundreds of people would follow him, and then somebody like the Greeks or the Romans would shut that down. We have no Messiah but the gods of the Romans or the gods of the Greeks. And so they would kill this guy that would rise up and claim to be a king or claim to be a god. And then all the followers would scatter. 
And this would happen over and over again. So when Jesus comes on the scene, how do we know that he's actually the Messiah? Well, 700 years before he even comes on the scene, he'll be born through a virgin. Now, I got news for you. You're not in biology class right now, but I'm going to tell you, you don't have babies without a sperm fertilizing an egg. That takes a man and a woman for that to happen. God then predicts 700 years before it happens, hey, you know what? This seed isn't going to be tainted by the sin that's passed on through man. Guys, it's all our fault. Let's just chalk it up now. It's the man's fault. Sin comes through his seed. So therefore, to keep that from happening, the Holy Spirit is going to overshadow a chosen woman, Mary, and then she's going to give birth to the Messiah, and his name is going to be called Emmanuel. Why is Emmanuel important? Emmanu literally means with us, and El is the uh, Hebrew prefix for God. Literally translated, with us is God. He comes to be with us. In case you're still wondering who the Messiah is going to be, a couple chapters later in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. If you're going to be given titles like that, you better do something pretty miraculous. Well, he does. He's born through a virgin. Then he performs miracles that again are attested to by both friends and foes. And the greatest miracle of all, he rises from the dead, leaving no doubt about who he is. But in case you want further evidence, there's 351 prophecies that he fulfilled. I'm going to read them fast. Are you ready? Okay, I'm only going to do three. I'll just do three. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 tells us exactly where Jesus is going to be born. You, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, to you, he is the one who is going to come into your city, and specifically Bethlehem of Ephrathah. Because there was two Bethlehems, so just to make sure you don't get it wrong, this is the Bethlehem he's going to be born in. Zechariah chapter 11 verse 12 goes towards the end of his life and tells us exactly how much money he's going to be betrayed for, and then also tells us that that money is going to be thrown down uh, on the ground and then be used to buy a potter's field. Man, Scripture just gets very specific. And then Psalm chapter 22 verses 16 through 18, are written in about 1,000 B.C. That's 1,000 years before crucifixion is invented, and yet we're told specifically how Jesus was going to die, he was going to be pierced, or he was going to be crucified. That's just the tip of the iceberg when it comes to making us confident or assured of who Christ is and what he's going to do on our behalf. In fact, chapter, uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1 says this, Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Can we know with confidence that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God in flesh? Can we have assurance that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is God in flesh? And again, the answer is absolutely yes. Please don't ever tell people that you just simply take what you believe on faith because of how misused the word faith has been. Now, if you unpack what faith means, then go ahead and say, I believe in Jesus based on faith. The word faith in the Greek is the word pestuo. It literally means belief to the point of conviction, or you have been so convinced of something that you put your full faith and trust in it, or your full belief in it. In a court of law, again, in order to make a right judgment, or in order for a jury to hand down a sentence, they need evidence. I am blown away by the evidence that has been discovered in God's word and in who Jesus is. That's what brought me to him at the age of 21. 
I set out at the age of 18 to disprove everything in this book, to disprove Jesus being God, to disprove any nonsense about a resurrection, some guy rising from the dead, some guy that was born from a virgin. And after three years of trying to disprove this book, and I I hate to say and admit that I think I read the Bible more before I was saved than after because I had such a fervor for disproving what was written in this book and couldn't. And then I ended up falling to my knees and giving my life to Christ. And I found this hope that couldn't be found in anything else. It couldn't be found in sports. It couldn't be found in money. It couldn't be found in cars. And now we also have this this hope. Your second bullet point is we have this hope in the present. We not only have hope in the past, but we have hope in the present. Jesus never leaves us. He's with us forever. Here's your popular Christmas passage. Luke Chapter 1, if you've got your Bibles and you'd like to turn there, or you can follow along on the screen, but Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38, is the fulfillment of hope that was in the past and hope that is brought to a couple uh, of young people in the present. It says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who has been called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Don't you love her attitude? She gets told this thing that should be absolutely impossible. And instead of arguing with God, she says, You're God. You're the Lord. Whatever you want to do with me just do it. Imagine if each one of us, each day when we woke up, just simply said, God, whatever it is that you want to do with me, go for it. Now, some of us may be thinking, well, I wish I was like Mary and I knew what was going to happen next. Be careful what you wish for. Sometimes I'm glad that God has not revealed the future because I'm a dumb human who would probably panic if I knew what might be coming. But I don't need to panic. Why? Because we have hope in the present. We have the one that was born to Miss Mary over here with us all the time. We tend to think, well, you know, he was on earth for, what, 35, 36 years. I know it's going to blow you away. Wait, he died in AD 33, but he was born in like BC 5 or 6. So he's probably like 38 or 39 when he died. I just throw that in there just to mess you all up. But after he died and he rose again, he sent the Holy Spirit to be with us so that we wouldn't be left as orphans. We have hope in the present. We don't have to fear or fret what it is that's going on around us because we have this hope. As Hebrews chapter 6 verse 19 says, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. 
Did you know that there's nothing that's outside of God's grasp? There's nothing that's outside of God's knowing? Nothing that's happening to you today or has happened to you in the past was outside of God knowing all about it, and therefore that anchors us? Well, on top of all of that, the third thing is we have hope for the future. That's the third tense of hope. And that's where we move to Revelation chapter 22. Now, this took some work this week because I got sick and was trying to figure out, okay, I'm not going to be able to preach this message on Revelation 22. How in the world am I going to weave that into Advent? Well, I didn't even have to do anything. God just made it all happen. Because this, this chapter in Revelation, or the last section of Revelation, is all about the hope that we have in the future. And it's all based off promises that we get. So today we're going to take a look at three promises that we have that bring us hope for the future. It begins in Revelation chapter 22, verse 6. Now if you'll remember, in Revelation 21 and 22, we've been taking a look at our final destination. We started with getting to know the people, then we got to know the place, and now we're going to get to know the promises that await us when we get there. It starts in verses 6 through 11. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true, and the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets. And with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. The first promise that we get of the three is the promise of his return. These words were written to get us ready for the promise of his return. And notice what he says. These words are trustworthy and true. And behold, I am coming soon. We can bank on the fact that this is going to happen. Remember, 351 prophecies about his first coming have already been fulfilled. Now we're just waiting for the ones revolving around his second coming. Are they going to happen? Absolutely. Listen to verse 6. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. These things are going to happen Verse 7 starts with the Greek word idu, or which is the word behold, which means pay close attention, don't miss this, Jesus is coming back. That should radically shape the way we live. We get so pick and concerned with what everybody thinks of us. I got to have the perfect looking Instagram account, Facebook account, perfect things written on Twitter. I got to look a certain way. I got to act a certain way. I got to talk a certain way. I got to make sure that everybody's happy with everything that I do. Stop. Jesus is coming again. And when he does... What everybody else around us thinks isn't going to matter. It's going to make no difference in the world. I've noticed that the more I spend time with Jesus, the more I spend time in his word, the more I love him, the less what others think matters. And I don't mean that in a bad way. If you're being a jerk and people are telling you about it, okay, stop being a jerk. But if you're simply loving Jesus and you're praising him and you're getting flack for it, that's okay. Listen, I feel for our young people Y'all are getting bombarded, whether it be in elementary school, junior high, high school, college. You're getting bombarded with garbage by friends, by enemies, and even by people that are supposed to be looking out for your good that we call professors and teachers. Praise God we have some professors and teachers sitting in this room that love Jesus, 
that are being light in a very dark place because we need that encouragement from you all for our kids. Notice that he says that there's a blessing for those that keep the words of the prophecy of this book. In other words, keep on keeping on. Keep fighting the good fight. Whether you're a young person or you're an older person and you're fighting the good fight, keep fighting it till he calls you home. Whether it be through death or the rapture, let us be the ones that keep the words of not only the book of Revelation, but all of Scripture. John then transitions to this encounter that he has with the angel in verses 8 and 9. And he lets us know that he did a, he did a, a not so good thing again for the second time. He falls down at the feet of an angel to worship him. And what does the, the angel say? Knock it off. This is how you know that the angel was actually sent by God. Because if he was actually one that was masquerading as an angel from God, he would take the worship for himself. But he says, stop. Worship God. Worship Jesus, who is God in flesh. Look at verse 11. It says, let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. I know you all probably weren't looking for a Greek grammar lesson at the first Sunday of Advent, but I'm going to give you a short one, okay? Just a short one. But the word evildoer is what we call the present active tense. But the word do evil is what we call the aorist active tense or the past tense. In other words, the evil that they have been committing in the past is going to be an evil they are going to continue to commit into the eternal future. Because these are people that have rejected Christ and chosen to worship sin or themselves or some other false god. And that's not going to quit when they get cast into hell. We have this misunderstanding of hell that we started to address a few weeks ago. And that is that people are in hell crying out, Lord Jesus, save me. But according to scripture, that's not the case. In fact, we're going to see that in the next portion of our passage in just a moment. But what we discover from Scripture is that the violent person will still be angry and violent. The lustful person will still be lustful and sexually immoral. The greedy person will still be greedy. They won't be crying out for forgiveness. They're going to be shaking their fist at God and continuing to live in their sin. And the the tenses of the Greek verbs here make that abundantly clear. Now, let me be clear on something else. This is not talking about the follower of Jesus that struggles with alcohol. I know many dear brothers and sisters that have struggled with alcohol their whole lives, but they love Jesus. Not to give you a million scripture passages to read, but 1 John speaks very clearly to this, the difference between the person that just practices sin because they've rejected Jesus and the person that struggles with sin that is trying to follow Jesus. The Apostle Paul spoke to this in Romans chapter 7. Y'all remember the tongue-twisting part? The things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, I do, so therefore the things that I do is is sin living within me. Have to say that verse three times fast. Think about that for a moment. Even the Apostle Paul, one of the apostles that was blessed to write 13 books of the New Testament, struggled over and over again with sin. But there's a difference between struggling with sin and hating it and going, I just don't care, I'm going to do what I want because I'd rather have this than Jesus. That's the person that will continue to live in in uh, an evil way or continue to practice evil. Which brings us to our next point. There's the promise of Jesus' reward. Did you know that rewards are not always a good thing? Especially if you're being rewarded for what you've done that's evil. I'll unpack that more in just a moment. Think about the word judgment. Does the word judgment usually bring a negative connotation or positive? In Scripture, it's both. 
If you don't know Christ, the judgment is awful. What we studied in Revelation chapter 22, or in Revelation chapter 20, at the great white throne judgment, man, that's scary. However, as Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 3, and then John talks about here in Revelation, getting to be at the judgment seat or the bema seat of Christ is a good thing. And then there's the concept of rewards. For believers, that's an awesome thing. I can't wait to see what our rewards are going to be like. But the recompense or reward for following after sin and following after a false god is going to be awful. In fact, let's look at verses 12 through 17 as we take a look at the rewards, the promise of the reward that we have coming our way. Behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense, or that word could be reward with me, to repay each one for what he has done. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root of the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Again, we're told that Jesus' coming is imminent. It's going to happen. It could be at any moment that he raptures us out of here. And then we see this list of gifts or rewards that we're going to be given that we don't even deserve. The first one starts in verse 13. Jesus says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. We get eternity because of the eternal one. Jesus isn't bound by time, and someday we won't be either. In verse 14, John gives the seventh and the final blessing in the book of Revelation. These are the ones who have been given forgiveness by Jesus. And it's not because of anything we've done, but because of what he's done. And with that forgiveness, what do we get? We get access to the tree of life. We get to enter into the holy city. Remember when Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? They got cut off from the tree of life, and they also got sent out of God's city or God's garden, and they got separated from him. Death happened on that day. There was a separation. But now because of Christ... We get to have perpetual or eternal life. Now, this is in stark contrast to those that are listed in verse 15. They are denied access to eternal life. Notice they're on the outside. Scripture talks about being baptized into Christ. Sometimes we get confused about baptism. Because again, let me ask you, what's the first thing you think when you think of baptism? You think of somebody going into the water, right? But ultimately, before water baptism is ever talked about in Scripture, baptism into Christ is talked about. The word baptize literally means to place into. Baptizo means to place into. So the moment you trust Christ, you are placed into Christ. That's where all of your hope and your protection comes from. Now that's in stark contrast to verse 15. Look at the first word in verse 15. What does your Bible say as far as the first word in verse 15? Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. They have not been baptized or placed into the body of Christ. Now, again, I want to make sure that we're clear on this. This is not about water baptism. 
Water baptism simply shows outwardly what has already happened to you spiritually. That has nothing to do with your salvation. There is no work of the law. There is no good work. It's not about baptism. It's not about communion. It's not about anything that you do in order to be saved. It's about everything that Christ has already done. And then he places you into his family. Now, verse 15 is also interesting because it uses the words for the, for the immoral or those that are outside. They love and they practice sin. Those are both what we call present active participles in the Greek. Present active means it's happening now and they are doing it by choice. It's a willful choice to rebel against the Lord. Now, here's another stark contrast. Look at verse 17. The Spirit... And the bride say, come, and let the one who hears say, come, and let the one who is thirsty come, and let the one who desires take the water of life without price. That should be us. Come. Jesus, come. Have you thought that at all this past week? You look around at what's going on, Jesus? Just come now. I have been the one in my family who has said, well, I don't want him to come too quick because I want to be able to walk my daughters down the aisle and I want to see grandkids. It's my own kids that remind me, Dad, when we get to heaven, we're not going to care about being married. To which I reply, shut up, you little twerps, and stop using my sermons against me. (laughs) But it's true. All these things that we long for, we're not going to long for anymore. We're not going to care about all the things of this world, which again is my constant reminder. Why do I get so wrapped up in the things that don't matter. I'm raising girls. Ladies, girls, I feel for you. You've got all of these expectations that you're supposed to measure up to. I'm supposed to have this body type. I'm supposed to have this look as far as facial features go. I'm supposed to have this kind of attitude. Just honor and glorify the Lord. Men, man, I feel for you too because we've got all these expectations that we're supposed to live up to. Just be a man of God. Just be a man who follows after Jesus. You want to know what the most manly man is that's ever walked the planet? His name's Jesus. We tend to think of him as just meek and mild. Well, he did. He kept his mouth shut and he went to the cross. But did you know that he also didn't have a problem calling out sin? Did you know that he told the religious leaders, no, that's not who I am, so you need to keep your mouth shut? He spoke to demons and told them, no, that's not who I am. Keep your mouth shut. Look, there's a, there's a fine balance. But men, we need to stand up and be men. Open your mouth. Tell people about who Jesus is. Ladies, stand up and be a lady of Jesus. Stop trying to measure up to what people say they expect of you and just simply live for Jesus. And then when people give you garbage, just tell them that I've got a much better man to live for than the ones that you're seeking after. He'll never let me down. I've already picked on the guys once. I mean, it's our fault. It's sin into the world. Girls, guys are not worth it when it comes to who you live for. Now find a man that loves Jesus, marry him, I'll do your wedding, and then go out and honor and glorify Jesus. But don't try to live for somebody that doesn't love Jesus. And by the way, if he doesn't love Jesus more than he loves you, I'll punch him in the throat for you. It's biblical. I mean, I I think it's, it's legitimately biblical to throat punch another man. I haven't found it yet, but it's there somewhere. Which is actually a great segue to the last promise, and that is that there is the promise of retribution. It's not going to come from me. It's going to come from Jesus. For those that have chosen to reject him, for those that are not saying, come Lord Jesus, be Lord, be Savior, be King, be Sovereign, here's what awaits them. 
I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Adding to or taking away from God's word results in positively having plagues added into one's life and negatively has one's name excluded from the, from the book of life. Deliberately adding to or taking away from God's word is proof positive that this is an unbeliever or somebody that is worshiping the wrong Jesus. I hope y'all know by now at this point that New Covenant and its leadership loves people. We want people to come to know Jesus and we love them so much and we want them to know Jesus so badly that we would never allow somebody to keep worshiping a false Jesus. There is a cult out there that has turned Jesus into an angel. If you worship an angel and it's an angel of God, it should tell you to keep your mouth quiet and worship the true God. There is a cult out there that has turned Jesus into a pre-existent spirit being who eventually took upon a body. There are cults and false religions out there that have turned Jesus into nothing more than a guru or a religious leader. None of those are acceptable when it comes to who Jesus is. He never gave us that option. Now, we wouldn't go out looking to pick a fight and be a jerk on purpose. We're looking to save souls. And so therefore, if somebody is believing in a false Jesus, we got to be ready to tell them. I don't mean to sound like an infomercial, but on the second Wednesday in January, we're going to start our next equip course. And in that equip course, we are going to be focusing on three different false religions or cults each month. We're going to spend four weeks on each. We're going to spend the first week looking at their history and where that religious group came from. And then we're going to spend the next three answering three questions that scripture gives us the answers to. Are you listening to the right people, giving you the right directions so that you end up in the right destination? With listening to the right people, first and foremost, are you listening to the right apostles and prophets? Are you listening to the true God, the one true God? When it comes to are you getting the right directions, what is the plan of salvation in the holy books that that particular group is using? And can they be proven to be from God? Or are they false? And thirdly, all of that matters greatly because you want to end up in the right destination. And is one's view of heaven, hell, and the afterlife correct or not? We get all of those answers in this book. In fact, John speaks to all of those just in the book of Revelation. We're going to have an absolute blast studying that together. And I want you always to keep in mind, we are not doing this because we're trying to be arrogant jerks, but because we know the one who knows the beginning and the end. We know the one who is the author of life. We know the one who has determined the number of days that we have. We know the only one that can save us. We know the only one who is God in flesh, the only one who ever rose from the dead on his own, the only one who ever ascended into heaven and is going to come again and he's going to take us to be with him. And because of all of that... Because of all of that, we can cry out, which I'm going to end with right here, verses 20 and 21. He who testifies to these things, this is Jesus, he says this, surely I am coming soon. And what is John's response? It's the same response that I pray New Covenant Church has. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. How many of us, if we heard Jesus say, surely I am coming soon, which to be clear, the word soon is the word taku in the Greek, which doesn't mean like next in order of events. It means that it just could happen at any moment. It could happen rapidly. It could happen imminently. 
When Jesus says that, surely I am coming imminently, I am coming soon, how many of us cry out, amen, come Lord Jesus? How many of us right now would cry out, amen, come Lord Jesus? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we come before you and we do, we cry out, just like John, just like the heroes of the faith that have gone before us, amen, come Lord Jesus. And Lord, we know that the only reason that we have any hope in your coming again is because you truly are God in flesh. You were in the beginning with God, you are God, and you always have been and always will be. We know that in you the fullness of deity dwells. We know that you are our great God and Savior, and it's your blessed hope that we await. And so, Lord Jesus, again, we cry out, just like the last words of this book that you have written, amen, come, Lord Jesus. It's in his mighty name that we all pray together. Amen. Gang, just a couple of reminders before you head out the door. Oh, David's pointing, I forgot something. 48 weeks ago, we put a veil up here, and I told you that there was something that those that were looking for the Messiah were looking forward to. I hope this doesn't end up being anticlimactic because we should kind of know what it was that was being unveiled. They didn't. They were looking forward to two things. They were looking forward to a savior and to a sovereign. They were looking forward to a cross and to a crown. They needed someone that was gonna save them from their sin, but they needed someone that was going to save them not only from their sin in the past, but continue to save them in the present and will one day save them in the future. The very thing that had been veiled, the very thing that they had been waiting for has been revealed to us in the course of about 48 weeks. Can you believe it? You just spent 48 weeks of your life getting to study about the Savior and the Sovereign, to which I would say 48 weeks is completely worth it because it's all about Jesus. Amen? This concludes today's message. We thank you so much for listening. We'd love for you to connect with us. You can do that at our website, nccabq.org. From there, you can submit any questions, feedback, and your prayer requests. nccabq.org is also where you can learn more about New Covenant Church. Subscribe to our podcast and newsletters, browse our online message archive, and even tune in and watch the stream of each weekly message. We hope you'll join us.